a number of weeks now, we have been on the topic of why Pentecost. We've been attempting to answer that question because that is a, a relevant and pertinent question that people have. Why would Pentecostal people be Pentecostal? Why is that a big deal? Why is that important? Is it just an optional thing like, you know, you buy a car with a heated steering wheel or you don't? Is it just an option? Uh, you know, uh, or is it really essential? Well, those of us who have come to know the fullness of the Spirit and have walked with the Lord in that experience for a length of time, we have come to know that really and truly it is essential, not necessarily to go to heaven, because, you know, the new birth gets you ready for heaven. But it's the baptism in the Spirit that gets you ready to stay here until you do go to heaven. It's the baptism in the Spirit that gives you power for service, that gives you access into spiritual blessings that normally we would not walk in that degree of. I know that was true for me, and that was true for most everybody that would be here today. You would say the same thing, that it's not that you didn't know God. It's not that you weren't uh, acquainted with the Holy Spirit to a degree. It's not that you didn't... uh, love God and want to serve Him all your life. But there's something about being filled with the Holy Spirit that, that ignites a fire on the inside and changes us so drastically that uh, it's, it's just an amazing transformation when we walk in the Spirit. Well, Jesus um, alluded to this it, it kind of indirectly. The disciples did not understand fully, I'm sure, what He was talking about at this point. But in John chapter 16 and verse 12, he says to the disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Now, stop for just a minute and think about this. You've been around Jesus now a good while, and you've heard his teaching. You've seen him do miracles. You've seen him raise the dead. You've seen all kinds of marvelous things that he has done. And he's given you words like no other man has ever given. He's taught with authority. He's just brought to you the presence of God because he is God manifest in the flesh. And then he says, there are things that I want to talk to you about, but I can't do it right now. Wouldn't that be frustrating? You know, it's like watching maybe your favorite show. You know, it's a series on television. And all of a sudden, you come to the cliffhanger right at the end of the program. And all of a sudden, you, know, you look up at your watch or whatever, and you realize, they're going to leave us hanging. This really is a cliffhanger. And I'm not going to get to know what happened until next week. You know, that's not always fun, is it? Well, that's kind of what Jesus was doing here. He was saying to the people that were listening, I've got a lot of things to say to you, but you can't handle them now. Now, that's almost insulting if you took it that way. You know, is it, is it because I'm not smart enough, Jesus? Is it because you, you really don't like me anymore? What's the going on? No, it's not either of those things, not at all. It's the fact that there are things that can only be known with the help of the Holy Spirit. There are things that you will never know unless you listen to the Holy Spirit and allow Him to minister to you. There are directives that come from God that have the potential to change the rest of your life for the better that you'll never hear and thus never act on if you're not in tune with the Holy Spirit. And so he's beginning to set them up for the next phrase, that he's, or the next statement he's going to make. 
He says in verse 13, however, however, so this is going to give them some comfort. When he, not it, but notice he. You need to always think about the Holy Spirit as a person. Whenever he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak And he will tell you things to come. So, you know, I'm sure this had to whet their appetite for the spirit of truth coming. Now, if you'll back, uh, turn back a couple of pages in your Bible or so, you'll find in John chapter uh, 14 and verse number 16, some more of Jesus teaching to them about the coming Holy Spirit. John 14, 16. He says, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. That's the way the New King James translates the word paraclete. It has a sevenfold meaning. If you have an amplified Bible, it gives you all seven meanings, which I think is really great. And uh, I don't know if I can remember each and every one of them, but it means uh, comforter, counselor, strengthener. Standby, helper, intercessor, and advocate. Thank you. So you could put any of those words there, and it's, it's right. It's, it's accurate. It, it would be in keeping with the original text. And I will pray the Father, and he'll give you another helper. He'll give you another counselor. He'll give you another comforter. He'll give you another strengthener. He'll give you another standby. And the word another, that's very important. The word another in this verse. You know, sometimes um, we, we talk about getting another thing, and we can mean that we're getting something entirely different. You know, you go to the buffet, and you get chicken. Well, um, let's say you're deciding to go back for round two. You know how we are. We hate to pay for buffets and not at least go twice. And so you say, I'm going to get another entree, another meat. And so I go back and I get beef. So we can, we can talk about another and it's basically something really different. That's not what this word means. This word doesn't mean something different. This means just another one like me. That's what he meant. Another one like me, not different from me. Another helper, another comforter, another counselor, another strengthener, standby, so forth. That he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth, notice whom the world cannot receive. Let me ask you this question. Can the world receive the new birth today through the preaching of the gospel? Yes. Is the Holy Spirit involved with the new birth? Absolutely. We're born of the Spirit. So when he says that there is something to do with the Holy Spirit the world can't receive, he's obviously talking about what the believers on the day of Pentecost received when they were baptized in the Spirit. Because the world neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And I'll just point out a moment here, just a little side journey The world neither sees him nor knows him. Let me just encourage you, don't be alarmed and don't be surprised and don't be discouraged 
when the world thinks you're crazy for being a spirit-filled believer. They don't know him. They don't understand him. And until they get in the family, they're not going to be able to figure it out. Amen? So don't, don't worry about that. Just, just enjoy the Holy Spirit because I'm going to tell you, the devil's going to try to say to you, well, don't talk about that. Don't act that way. Don't use those words because, you know, people don't understand and, and, and somebody might get offended. Well, you know, big deal. I've been offended before, haven't you? I've got, I've got my little feelings hurt right in church, haven't you? And whenever somebody did it in love, bringing me truth, not trying to hurt me, but just telling the truth, I, I appreciate that because I don't want to stay in ignorance. And I don't want to do without one thing that God has planned for me. Amen. And so Jesus is saying to these people here, um, he, he said, uh, he's saying that they will be better off, in other words, if he goes. He says, uh, you know, he, he, he's, he's saying to them that you're going to be uh, better off with the comforter coming than you would be with just me here alone. Now look in verse 5 of John 16. I want to show that to you. John chapter 16, verse 5. He says, But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, Where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm going, and they immediately get so sad that they don't even ask him, Where are you going? Or what's going to happen? And, of course, later on he's going to tell them that he needs to go so the Spirit of God can come. Now, notice here in verse 7. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage. The old King James says, It is expedient for you. That means you're better off. It's profitable for you, he says, that I go away. Now, think again. If you were in their shoes, what would you think about this? This... This Jesus has healed the sick, cleansed the lepers, raised the dead. He's fed multitudes miraculously. He has carried this entourage of his closest disciples with him for all this time, and they haven't lacked for anything. Those who had families, everything was taken care of. This is a miracle guy, this Jesus. And now he says, you're going to be better off when I'm gone. And I'm sure they had to think, how is in the world is that going to happen? How am I going to be better off when you're gone, Jesus? And then he says, For if I do not go away, the helper, and you guessed it, it's paraclete, the counselor, the comforter, the strengthener to stand by, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So that's what Pentecost was about. And that's what it is about. The Holy Spirit came. And the Holy Spirit is here. And Jesus considered the Holy Spirit absolutely essential in order for the church to fulfill its purpose. And that's why he told them, don't go anywhere, don't do anything. Even though you've got a commission to go to all the world and to preach the gospel, what an urgent and powerful commission that was. But he said, don't do it, don't try it, don't go until you are clothed with power from on high. Luke 24, 49. Now for several weeks, we have studied 
the Spirit-filled life and particularly what that looks like on a personal level. Today, we're going to begin to change gears and don't get nervous. We're not going to get to all of it today. We'll find a stopping place at a reasonable time. But we from now, in the next uh, uh, few Sundays, we are going to teach this. We're going to change gears and look at what a Spirit-filled church looks like. What Spirit-filled services should be like and what they were like in the New Testament. We're going to talk about what we call sometimes the corporate anointing. The corporate anointing, meaning the anointing that comes upon the body when the body gathers. You see, there's a reason why God wants His people to gather in services. We live in an age of uh, instant uh, entertainment. We live in an age of the internet. We live in an age where you can literally sit home in your pajamas and watch church. And pastors and ministries that are trying to fulfill the Great Commission, well, we would be foolish not to use these tools. They're some of the most cost-effective and efficient tools we've ever been given to reach the world. And uh, literally, you can, from Appomattox, Virginia, reach around the world through the Internet. And that is a blessing. That's a powerful tool. But nowhere does that excuse believers from gathering. As a matter of fact, the book of Hebrews tells us to not forsake, Hebrews 10, 26, not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And so much the more as we see the day approaching. And what that means is the closer we get to the coming of Jesus, we ought to go to church more, not less. This, this tragedy and fiasco and I don't know, there are lots of words I could use to describe it, but I'll refrain from going any further. Of the last couple of years... You have to know that in addition to stealing, killing, and destroying, one of the major things the devil wanted to do was to stop this that we're doing today. It's to stop God's people from gathering. I've said this I don't know how many times, and I'm going to keep on saying it because it's absolutely true. There are things that happen when God's people gather collectively or corporately that do not happen in your bedroom or your bathroom or your living room or your back porch. We need to be people of prayer wherever we are. and We need to rejoice and sing and shout and praise at home and wherever we may be. And it's wonderful to worship God and communicate with God while you drive in your car. But there is no substitute for being in the house of God. There are things that will happen to you and things that you will receive and things you will see and things you will hear that you just can't get by watching online or watching in any other fashion for that matter. And so that's why it's important to find out how church should be done. A lot of people have the, the idea, it seems, that these are just preferences they're just choices we arbitrarily make because of our personality types or because of our backgrounds, uh, you know, those kinds of things that we just decide how we're going to do church. 
Well, that's not scriptural. Because church is not about me. And it's not about you. Yes, you're involved. I'm involved. Thankfully, we can be. And yes, there are wonderful things provided for us at church. But as far as the central focus and the bottom line reason of why we do church, it is not about us. It's not about popularity with the community. It's not about acceptance by the elites or the educated or the uneducated, the redneck or the white collar or the blue collar or the rich or the poor. It's none of those things. It's about anybody and everybody, regardless of who they are and what their status is, coming into the presence of God and worshiping God and making that time all about God. That's what it's about. If God isn't pleased when we get done, then we've wasted our time in many ways. If God isn't happy with what's been said, then I haven't said the right thing. If God isn't happy with what's been done, then we haven't done the right thing. And so how can we learn what a Spirit-filled service should be like. How can we learn how to do church in this way? Let's go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to be in uh, this vicinity of Scripture now, probably for a few Sundays. Of course, next week we have a guest, and, um, and we'll pick it back up the Sunday after. But we're going we're gonna to start here, and we're going to, first of all, we're going to actually look at some Scripture in chapter 12 and then we're going to look at some scripture in chapter 14. And so you can be ready for that. And uh, another thing I want to say is that uh, this passage, chapter 12, 13, and 14, is one of the most complete uh, and detailed teachings that we have in all the New Testament about the specifics of a church service. Now, we're going to go back and pick up some other things from the book of Acts that, that we will see. But... Um, Paul gave some detailed instructions. And I think it's amazing. I mean, we're not going to major on this today. But in the 13th chapter, this wonderful love chapter that so many people love and are so familiar with, and we all do love it, but it's amazing how it's sandwiched right in between chapter 12 and chapter 14, which chapter 12 and chapter 14 talk about the gifts and ministries of the Holy Ghost and about the order of service in a Pentecostal church, because the Corinthians were Pentecostal. I mean, and Paul was even more Pentecostal, if you can be more Pentecostal, because he said, I think, my God, I speak with tongues more than you all. And as I pointed out, I don't know how many times already, the whole New Testament was written by people who were spirit-filled and spoke in tongues to people that they assumed would also be saved and filled with the Spirit and speak in tongues as well. That's, that's why some of these passages, like we're going to look at in chapter 12 and chapter 14, that's why... Uh, you can go to churches, sometimes you can go to some churches for years and you, you never hear anything about these passages. Because if you don't know the Spirit's fullness and you don't know anything about the operation of these gifts, then there's passages here you just, you just don't know about. How do you teach what you don't know? And I would rather to, for any of us to say, I don't know and stay away than to try to develop theories that are inaccurate and lead people astray. And I want to tell you, it's quite a cop-out just to tell people that passed away. Let's move on. 
That is not the way this should be taught. Number one, it didn't pass away. And number two, even if it did, then show me a clear and concise scriptural pattern of where it did. And don't quote some dead guy from 1635. Bring me a scripture. Bring me somebody who wrote this book. Amen. Excuse me for getting a little cantankerous there. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. Now the word gifts is italicized in your English Bible, your King James Bible at least. And that means it's not in the original text. The translators added it, helping us, thinking they were going to help us better understand the context here. And it does help to some degree. But it just says in the original, now concerning spirituals, brethren. So we would say it this way in modern English perhaps. Now concerning things pertaining to and of the Holy Spirit. Concerning the things of the Spirit. He says what? I do not want you to be ignorant. How many of you know that the same Holy Spirit inspired this passage is the same Holy Spirit that inspired John 3.16. The same Holy Spirit that inspired John to write the book of the Revelation, which gives us those beautiful descriptions of heaven and the street of gold and all of that. Same Holy Ghost. This scripture is just as accurate and it's just as real. And this verse says, concerning the things of the Spirit, I don't want you to be ignorant. In other words, I don't. let me say it this way. I don't want you to not know. I want you to know. Now, that's one aspect. Here's the other. I don't want you to ignore these things. Because ignorance comes from what we've ignored. The words are connected, obviously. You know, I've, I've made it my business to ignore astrophysics. <laughs> I made it my business to ignore algebra. One and two, and geometry. I only, have, I, only, I only got a high school diploma because of the grace of God, and I guess they didn't want to put up with me any longer. Uh, you know, there, there are a lot of things that I'm ignorant of. But I don't think I'm stupid. And so I'm not calling anybody stupid. But, but we can be ignorant of things, and, and, it, and, and the things we're ignorant of are simply those things we don't know about. But there is an aspect you've got to get here is that you can choose to ignore things and then think, well, I, you know, I'm ignorant of that. I don't know about it, and I'll just leave it alone. And, and can I say to you this morning, that's what tons of church people do. Well, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to hear about Preachers even do it. I'm not going to get into that. We're not going to talk about that. And so you have entire congregations who are, to a great extent, ignorant of the things of the Spirit. They're not stupid people. They're not bad people. But they just don't know. And one of the things that that is so important to understand about that kind of a concept is that faith only begins where the will of God is known. And so if you are ignorant of the things of the Spirit, you will never have faith for the things of the Spirit. Somebody says, well, you know, I've got faith in God. I've got faith in God. Just, just talk to me about Jesus. Just, you know, let's just get everybody saved. Well, you know, if we could get everybody saved and then we killed them a, 10 seconds later, 
We could guarantee they're in heaven. I mean, we go to hell, but we guarantee they're in heaven. I mean, that'd be one way to do the Great Commission, maybe. But how many of you know that's not practical? That's not going to work. And, and so uh, uh, it's, it's, it's marvelous, and we want to see people born again. That's step one. You've got to do that. But once you're born again, you need to know about the things of the Spirit. Because it's not God's intention that the Christian life be lived without the fullness of the Spirit. The whole New Testament is based on certain premises that you must understand if you're going to be successful as a believer. And one of the premises of the entire New Testament and the New Testament church was that it would be a Spirit-filled, Spirit-led, Spirit-empowered body in the earth. In every generation, not just the first 30 years or the first 60 years or the first 100 years, but in every generation, right up until the time when Jesus comes for a church, by the way, without a spot or a wrinkle, a mark of age. Look the word up. Now I've got some wrinkles. Marks of age. You know... Wish I didn't, but they're there. Thank you, Sister Margaret. Amen. They're there. They're there. They're there. Well, Jesus isn't coming for a church that looks old. He's not coming for a sea hag. Anybody remember Popeye? Some of you old enough remember Popeye, the sea hag. That's not who he's coming for. There's no wrinkle. In other words, now why would I take the time to even talk about that? Because the church he's coming for looks as young as it did on the day of Pentecost. It's bigger. It's done a whole lot of stuff. But it's still got the vibrancy of its youth. It's still alive. People are still receiving. Miracles still happen. People still get healed. Lives are still being changed. And people are getting turned around and delivered by the power of the name of Jesus. And it's just the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. Even better because of all the tools we have to do the job with. That's the kind of church he's coming for. Praise the Lord. So we don't want to be ignorant. Now, let's go over... And look at verse 31 of chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 31. Now, he's given a list, and we're going to come back and fill in some blanks. So, so, you know, we just can't do it all in one day. And so, for the next two weeks, your homework assignment is to read chapters 12, 13, and 14 several times. Read them several times. You know, at least five times in two weeks. So when we come back next time, we can hit the ground running. Amen. But verse 31 says, But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. So a couple of things in this verse we need to understand. The word gifts here is not italicized. He's actually talking about some gifts that he's referred to in this chapter. And some of these are what we call gifts of the Spirit, three gifts of power, three gifts of revelation, and three gifts of utterance. And some of these gifts are what we call ministry gifts, gifts of ministry that God sits in the church. And he says here to earnestly desire the best gifts. Now, there's been debate over what are the best gifts. What would that be? What would be the best gift? And one great explanation, I'm not sure that it's the full answer, but it's a good answer, is that the best gift is the one that's most needed at the moment. 
Whatever gift that's needed at the moment, that would be the best one. But we are going to see later on that there are actually certain gifts that carry more weight spiritually. And I use that term on purpose because the manifestations of the Spirit have to do with the glory of God. God's manifested presence, His glory. And the word glory, the word means heavy, weighty. And there are certain manifestations and certain operations that carry more weight. There are certain times in all of our lives when we've been more anointed than at other times. Brother Bill's testimony yesterday of a miraculous healing, how the power of God just threw him against a wall, got him a major healing. Healings, really. Well, I haven't seen him thrown against a wall here today. But he's still anointed. So there are measures and degrees. And it's, it's, it behooves us to always reach for the best, the most. Amen? Let's go over to chapter 14. Chapter 14. And verse number 1. Here he says, after he has talked about this more excellent way that verse 31 referred to, which is the way of love, the 13 chapters, I mean the 13 verses of, of chapter 13 as we call it. Then he picks up in chapter 14, verse 1, and says, Pursue love. He's just got through talking about it. Pursue love. And what? Desire. Desire. Spiritual gifts. Here it's italicized again. So here he is saying, We are to walk in love, and we should desire the things of the Spirit. Why would it be important to desire them? Because that's the only way you're going to get them. If you don't want them, you won't have them. For many, many years, I have watched the Pentecostal world and the non-Pentecostal world. It's my business. I am a pastor. So I have observed and, you know, being a, 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 at least a, a lightweight student of some history. I've watched and I've heard so many different things over the years. And uh, one of the things I have observed is that there's, there are entire groups of people in the body of Christ that they are almost afraid of any kind of manifestation of the Spirit as we would know it. And they don't want it in their church. And they will tell you they don't want it. And they're afraid, quote unquote, that that stuff might get in their church. And you know what you want to do, what I want to do by nature, my smart aleck nature, I want to say, honey, don't worry about it. As long as you feel that way, it ain't coming to your church. Remember they used to advertise movies coming to a theater near you? Well, this, this isn't coming to a church near you if that church is dead and doesn't want it. I mean, think about it. God's not a fool and God is not foolish. Why would he tell us to pursue these these, or desire these things if he didn't mean it, if it was of no value, if it meant nothing. No, blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. So it's important that we desire these things. Well, how do you get desire? Well, one way is by getting hungry. Some of you know that right now. You get hungry, and so, you know, you, know, you can get full, and, and you don't want food, no matter how good it is. 
no matter how much you like it. You don't want any more. You're filled. But hang around. That'll pass. And eventually, you'll want some more. Well, hunger drives us. And, and there is such thing as a spiritual hunger. And I've already talked about this in this series. But you, if you're not hungry for the things of God, ask Him to make you hungry. Amen. And one of the keys to getting hungry is to hang around this kind of teaching. And to hang around places where the Spirit of God does move. And you will get hungry for the manifestations of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Now let's go over uh, to chapter 37 of, of uh, I mean verse 37 of chapter 14. If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. Now I want to stop a minute here. Of course, we haven't, again, even this chapter, we haven't filled in all the blanks either. But this jumped out at me as I was preparing to minister to you today. Let him acknowledge, if, you, if a person is spiritual, let him acknowledge that what I'm writing are the commandments of the Lord. Not the suggestions of the Lord. This is how church is supposed to be. If you do your homework in the next couple of weeks, these things you're going to be reading about, these gifts that are going to be listed, those are things God wants among his people. And then it's very interesting, verse 38 says, But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Isn't it amazing? Chapter 12, verse 1, I don't want you to be ignorant. And then after he's done all this explaining, he gets toward the end of this section and passage of his, this letter, and he says, basically, if you're not hungry by now, if you don't want to know more by now, if this has no, no bearing on you now, then we're just going to have to let you go and be ignorant. Isn't that what he says? But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. And uh, that's why um, I have found that when people don't know, but they want to know, then I'll stay with them. But if they're ignorant because they just choose to ignore the truth, then I don't have any time to waste. Amen. He says, therefore, verse 39, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. It's amazing how that some folks, it seems the only verse they know of chapter 14 is the 40th verse. <laughs> Let all things be done decently and in order. And it, it, it just doesn't even make any sense. He's not saying decently and in order means doing nothing. He's saying all these things I'm telling you about need to be done decently and in order. You need to have tongues. You need to have prophecy. You need to have the gifts of the Spirit. You need to have these various ministry gifts and manifestations, demonstrations, and operations of the Holy Ghost in your midst. It just needs to be done in the right way. And there is a great responsibility upon spiritual leadership, upon pastors particularly, that they can interpret the flow of the Spirit and know which way to go and where to do. Uh, a move of God is not just about scriptural memorization. A move of God is not just about knowing doctrinal truth. As important as those things are, 
But a great move of God has to do with being able to know the move and the flow and the way of the Spirit. And it's different in a group of six people praying together than it is a group of 60 people in a midweek service or that it would be in a congregation of 600 people. And as numbers grow and multiply, you have to learn where we are and how we function at this place. And I'm so glad God has all those answers and I don't have to figure that out. I just have to obey. But God is a God of order and a God of planning. The problem is he deals with people who aren't so much. We are limited by our minds and we're limited by our flesh. And, and so when you couple that with God's absolute requirement, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 7, that we walk by faith and not by sight, here's what it boils down to. We come each week, each time we meet, if we are determined that we're going to follow and flow with the Holy Spirit, then what we have to do is learn to walk by faith, not by sight. We have to learn to yield and lean on the Holy Spirit. We have to learn how to be led. We have to learn the flow of the Spirit and the way of the Spirit. And that takes time. That takes uh, effort. That takes desire. And one of the fastest, best ways that we get to that place is by hanging around people who already know something about it. One of the big problems in the, with the charismatic move over the years, in my opinion, you can take it or leave it, whatever you want to do with it. As I say, it's my opinion. But one of the biggest problems that I see is that there were, there were people who received some genuine good things from God but they didn't stay around other people who were experienced in the flow of the Spirit long enough to know how to use it properly. And therefore, there were a lot of abuses and some craziness that got out there, which you know we all then had to try to overcome and live over, uh, which not necessarily would all that have happened had people taken some time to just wait on God and to hang out with some folks who knew about the move of the Spirit. And I've said this before, I think, in this series as well, but it bears repeating. I remember the late Norval Hayes making this statement. I never, I never have forgotten this. He said, he said, I like to hang around. And, of course, he and Brother Kenneth E. Hagan, they were great friends. He said, I like to hang, around, hang out with Brother Hagan. And he gave his reason. He said, because he knows God better than I do. And I tell you, it, it is important if you want to learn the way of the Spirit and you want to learn it the fastest way you can, then hang around people who know the way of the Spirit. Don't try to reinvent the wheel. Don't try to do everything on your own. You don't have to come up with something original and new. As a matter of fact, if we preach the Bible, we don't preach anything new. Amen. So, that's where we're headed. We're on our way. We're already on our way. But um, to coin a phrase, uh, you know, you haven't seen, you ain't seen nothing yet. The best is yet to come. The biggest, best is yet to come. Oh, hallelujah. And we're not going to back down. We're not going to back away. We're not going to ignore the things of the Spirit. Now, when we gather again, I'm going to take you on a quick whirlwind tour. I know you're doubting that I can do anything quickly, but we're going to do a quick tour and just fly through Acts 2, Acts 4, Acts 8, Acts 10, and Acts 13 and look at some Holy Ghost-filled New Testament 
church meetings. And then we're going to get back into 1 Corinthians 12 and, and 14 and talk about these gifts and ministries of the Holy Spirit and talk about how they work. And God's going to